This is Rabbi Sharon Brous, Rabbi Adi Kar, where we're dedicated to reinvigorating Jewish community, ritual, and learning, all while laying the foundation for a just and loving society. You're listening to Ikar's podcast, where you can hear our sermons from Shabbat and holidays, our teachings, our guest speakers, basically anything we think worth hearing that we can capture and stream, you can listen to right here. The whole Megillah. I mean, literally, the whole Megillah. So thank you so much for being with us. Joseph, our ancestor, is sitting in prison in, in Egypt. Having been sold into slavery, he's sitting and he's waiting. Twelve years, Joseph waited in prison, alone and perhaps forgotten. But now, in Parshat Miketz, change begins to take place with great immediacy. Joseph, we read today, will emerge from the depths. He will interpret Pharaoh's dreams and ascend to power. This will give him the wherewithal to support his family, who will move to Egypt to avoid death by famine. This family will thrive, but we, the readers, know that they will soon also suffer. A new Pharaoh will arise over Egypt, and they will be thrust into hundreds of years of enslavement and brutality and human suffering. Here we stand, though, today, at the cusp of a great and terrible unfolding in our national story. The impending darkness is so deep that it will take hundreds of years for our people to escape. It was after two years' time that Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile. This is a strange way to begin a Torah portion of such great significance and consequence. Miketz, vayihi miketz shnatayim yamim. It was at the end of two years' time. Vecholashon ketz sofu, the rabbis tell us. The language of ketz from miketz always points to an ending. Why is our chapter, this chapter, of great consequence, beginning with these words. Why are we starting this journey of descent by talking about the end? Well, in the surface read of the text, it's really just a small detail. It was at the end of two long years since Joseph had interpreted the dreams of the cupbearer. It's terrifying to think that Joseph's last best shot at freedom had been more than two years earlier. Every night in that prison must have been a living hell for him. But I wonder why we really need that detail, that it was at the end of two years' time since the cupbearer's dream was interpreted. Does it really matter that it was miketshna time to yamim, that it was at the end of those two years? It doesn't really matter. It was a long, dark, and painful time for Joseph, a time of isolation, a time of terror. That's all we really need to know. It's not hard to see this as a strange, superfluous detail, which perhaps we only notice because the Torah portion itself becomes named after that one unnecessary detail, Miketz. And yet, that is how this chapter of our national story begins. And we have to wonder why. I believe that it is a signal, a sign, a hint. But a hint of what? 
Now, to solve this riddle, we have to take a step back. We have to recall that this family, our ancestors, held a great multi-generational secret. Abraham had been warned by God generations earlier. God said to Avram, know well that your offspring will be strangers in a land that's not their own. They will be enslaved and oppressed for hundreds of years. Imagine the burden that Abraham was forced to hold, knowing a secret like that, knowing that before you and your family is unavoidable pain, so much anguish. This secret was quietly passed down from one generation to the next. The future is grim. Unimaginable suffering lies before you. Abraham passed this terrible secret to Isaac, Isaac passed it on to Jacob. At this point in our narrative, we, the reader, know the secret that Jacob's own children will not learn for many, many years to come. Because it's only when Jacob is very close to death that he feels a kind of anguished sense of urgency to transmit this message to his children. He wants to prepare their hearts for the dark days ahead, to warn them that they are poised at the edge of a very painful abyss. But at that point, when Jacob tries to share the news, something goes wrong. Either he can't speak the words or his children can't hear it, and Jacob dies after having shared the prophecy with only one of his children, with Joseph. Joseph receives the sacred transmission. Our people will enter a time of impenetrable darkness, and it may last a long time. And even worse, as Chizkuni and other of our commentators hint, this dark chapter will not be only one exile, but probably many over the course of a long and tortured history. That is a very heavy familial burden for our ancestors to bear. Except that the prophecy does not end in darkness. It never does. In chapter 48 of the book of Genesis, we learn that God will be with you and bring you back to the land of your ancestors. Joseph understands that before us is great suffering, but our story does not end in heartache. Ours is not a narrative of humiliation and pain and endless suffering. Ours is a narrative of the promise of redemption. As time goes on and the family gets closer and closer to this edge of the abyss, that message becomes less of a subtle hint and more of a shout into the night. Listen to Yosef, Joseph on his own deathbed years later. He says to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will remember you one day and bring you up out of this land to the land that was sworn to our ancestors. And when God remembers you, bring my bones up as well. Things are about to get really bad, Joseph warns his family. We are on the verge of a deep and profound darkness. But you have to remember, he says, even in the darkest days that the suffering will not last forever. This will not be the end of our story. Pay attention. The text is crying out to us, not only to the immediate, but to the greater narrative arc, not only to the present, but also to the end of this story. 
It's hard to tell people who are standing on the cusp of great darkness and all the more so hard to tell people who are living in the muck of that darkness that there is a better future, that they must hold hope. It's hard to look at a landscape of immense human suffering and affirm a generous, redemptive future. And yet, the generational transmission of hope we know is the most audacious and profound expression of spiritual resistance in a broken and cruel world. Of course, this is precisely how God framed the message of unavoidable hardship to Avram in the first place. God said back in chapter 15, know that your offsprings will be strangers in a strange land for hundreds of years. They will be enslaved and oppressed, but I will execute judgment on the nation that enslaves them. And in the end, they will go free with great wealth. In other words, not only will your children suffer terribly, but they will eventually be redeemed by God's own hand. There will be an end to the heartache. A different kind of future is possible. I say this to us today because I believe that being a covenantal Jew, being a part of this long, ancient, often painful story requires us to hold both the pain and the heartache and the suffering and also the promise that the seemingly impossible is absolutely possible. To be in a covenantal relationship with God means to live both in the terrible now and also in the luminous future. It's so hard. It's so hard in the darkest times to hold both of these truths. I understand in my core why people distance themselves from our pain or fail to hold faith in the promise of a better future, even arguing that speaking of the promise of a better future is an act of betrayal because it's so hard to hold both of these realities, maybe too hard to bear. But I wonder if that's why the seemingly superfluous word miketz begins our parsha, and this supremely significant chapter in Joseph's journey, his aliyah letzarech yirida, his ascent to power in Pharaoh's court that will only lead to our people's descent into slavery. Because even as we find ourselves in dark and desperate places, we must remember to plant tiny seeds of hope. We must remember that our story does not end there. Our trajectory, our trajectory is ultimately the reverse. Yirida letzarech aliyah, descent in the service of ultimate redemption. I know that even articulating a vision for the future can feel empty and meaningless in these dark days, disconnected from reality. It may even feel dangerous, like some kind of impossible fantasy, but the greater danger is not to dream at all and to live instead in the despairing present. That is a kind of death in its own right for it leads only to nihilism. Remember, Joseph sat in prison for 12 long years, years of incredible mental anguish. And then out of nowhere, at the beginning of this parasha, history shifts 
and a man has a dream, and Joseph's story unfolds in rapid bursts of urgency. He nay, he nay, he nay, he nay, he nay. Six times this word is repeated in the first seven verses of our Torah portion. Behold, behold, all of a sudden, out of nowhere, pay attention, wake up. In other words, you have no idea what tomorrow might bring. And so we plant the seeds, even in the depth of winter, for a harvest that we pray we will one day be able to see. We cast our gaze forward to an impossible future, even from the depths of immeasurable heartache, because that future will come only when we dream it. Do you know who understands this, Torah? Rachel Goldberg, Hirsch Goldberg Poland's mother, one of the 132 who remain in captivity. Rachel has become not only a fierce advocate for her son's return and the return of all of the captives, but she has become a prophet in our time, calling us from the depths of our collective heartache to imagine a different kind of future. Hear this. This is not a future of victory or vanquishing the enemy. This is a just and shared future, a future in which we affirm one another's humanity and our own, in which together we move from darkness to light, from anguish to celebration, from enemy to neighbor, perhaps even to friend. Rachel wrote this poem this week called One Tiny Seed. There is a lullaby that says your mother will cry a thousand tears before you grow to be a man. I have cried a million tears in the last 67 days. We all have. And I know that way over there, there's another woman who looks just like me because we are all so very similar. And she has also been crying. All of those tears, a sea of tears, they all taste the same. Can we take them? Can we gather them up, remove the salt, and pour them over our desert of despair and plant one tiny seed? A seed wrapped in fear, trauma, pain, war, and hope, and see what grows? Could it be that this woman so very like me that she and I could be sitting together in 50 years laughing without teeth because we have drunk so much sweet tea together. And now we are so very old and our faces are creased like worn out brown paper bags. And our sons have their own grandchildren and our sons have long lives, one of them without an arm. But who needs two arms anyway? Is it all a dream, a fantasy, a prophecy? One tiny seed. Listen, for many Jews and for most Israelis who I have spoken with, every day is October 7th. Every day. Our family is still in deep shock. We are still reeling from the anguish and the horror of the atrocities that have been committed against us. We are completely captivated by the captives. 
by the toxic discourse, by the ongoing threat to our safety. It's hard. It's almost unimaginably hard to speak about a hopeful future, any hopeful future, two states, a confederation, a shared future, a just future, anything that would be markedly different from the past, that would create the conditions for a just peace to flourish. And yet there is no way that we will survive the deep and dark present without articulating a just future, even when we're not yet ready to hear it. And so we must stand now on the side of those insisting on finding another way, building a new language, making a way out of no way. There is no way forward that is not the way of standing together, of the Bereaved Families Forum, of combatants for peace, of those heroes, Jewish and Palestinian, who we cite and amplify and lift up here week after week after week. There is no way forward that does not include justice for Jews and for Palestinians, that does not include Jews and Palestinians seeing one another as human beings, as parents, and children, and sisters, and brothers, people with beautiful, broken hearts, with a deep, irrepressible yearning for home, with dreams of self-determination, with a sacred hunger for security, for safety, and for dignity. Friends, if Rachel Goldberg, now 10 unimaginable weeks into her son's captivity, can call us to imagine a redemptive future, how can we not? Let us imagine a different end to this story than the endless cycle of victimhood and villainy, violence and recrimination, entrenchment and evasion. Come, each one of us, let us plant one tiny seed. Shabbat shalom. Hi, it's Rabbi Brous again. Thank you so much for listening. Want more content like this? I hope you'll subscribe. And please consider making a contribution to Ikar so we can continue to work toward the fulfillment of our mission, to reanimate Jewish life, to embody moral courage, to nurture the spirit, and to work to decipher what it means to be a human being in the world today. Visit our website at ikar.org. That's I-K-A-R.org. And I hope to see you, maybe even in person, sometime soon.